Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Divine Lantern. We are so glad you could tune in. With the blessing of His Eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. I'm Alana from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and I'm your host for this week's episode, where we are joined by Father Ephraim, who will be discussing the importance of the priesthood. This will be followed by a Did You Know segment, and we will then conclude this week's episode with a continuation of our series on the prophets. The priesthood in the Orthodox Church. The priesthood is the crown of the sacraments because without it the Church cannot continue. No one can receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit without it. The sacrament was established from the beginning like all other sacraments. When Christ fulfilled his ministry, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, he left his disciples waiting for the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to come and give them power and authority. This disciple received the Holy Spirit ten days after the ascension, on the day of Pentecost, where they were sent out to spread the church throughout the world. Wherever they preached, they established the church, where they would leave overseer or bishops. The word overseer is derived from the Greek word episkopos, which is pronounced bishop in English. This is the term we used for our bishops. The apostles had already ordained and appointed deacons in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts in the New Testament. Besides bishops, we also find a group called presbyters in the New Testament. Initially, these presbyters and bishops were just different ways to call the person who presided over the liturgy. Once all the apostles died, we see that the name bishop is given to those in charge of the liturgy and the presbyters were the elders that the bishops surrounded themselves with. Eventually, bishops became in charge of multiple parishes and names presbyters as the leaders of the liturgy in the parishes. This was the creation of the diocese. Much of our worship is actually rooted in ancient Judaic practices, such as reading and chanting psalms, incense, and even priests. The priests of the Old Testament had to be descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the first priest of Israel. This practice was healed until the destruction of the temple in the year 70s after Christ. St. John the Baptist father, Zacharias, was one of the priests, and he was, of course, a descendant of Aaron. These priests were in charge of the sacrifices and other rituals of the rules of the temple. Not all of our worship comes directly from the traditions of Judaism. Our priests are not required to be descendant of Aaron. Jesus Christ is explained as having come as king 
prophet, and priest, the three major rules of the Old Testament. As a priest, Christ is the one who presides over the end all sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, leading to the redemption of the world. This established a separate priesthood than that of Israel. Psalm 110 refers to the Messiah as being a priest forever after the order of Malkisadek. As a side note, Christ comes from the Greek Christos, meaning the anointed one, which is in Hebrew is Messiah. The priesthood is passed on by ordination or the laying on of hands by a bishop with the approval of the people. Today, we see our priest presiding over the mysteries of the church, including liturgies, baptisms, weddings, holy ancient, and confession. Besides these mysteries, the priest also leads other services, such as the funeral, paraclesis, authors, vespers, and much more. Today, though our archdiocese might be large, the connection of our metropolitan and our presbyters priests is still very real. The special cloth that has an icon of the burial of Christ, the Andimension, which must be present on the altar to offer the gifts up to God, is signed and distributed by the bishop. Even though we don't see them as often as our priest, our bishops are still connected with them and us through this. Dear in Christ, we'll talk about the role of the clergy in the Orthodox Church. In the Orthodox Church, the three main clerical officers, bishops, priests, and deacons, are ordained through the sacraments called holy orders. These clergy members represent Christ's presence with his people. The church also teaches that the clergy are exclusively male and receive their authority from the apostles of the New Testament. Clergy members are directly or indirectly responsible to teach, administer, sacraments and perform administrative duties in the church and local parishes. Apostolic succession. Orthodoxy teaches that the first leaders of the church were Jesus. Twelve apostles are referenced in St. Luke chapter 6:13 and when it was day he called unto him his disciples and of them he chose the twelve whom also he named apostles. The church also believes Jesus taught the mysteries of the faith to the apostles in the fourth days after he was raised from the dead. According to church teaching, the apostles could ordain their own successors in the same way Christ had promised to send the Holy Spirit to the apostles to remain with them until the end of the world. Apostolic succession permits the church to continue from one generation 
to the next. The Orthodox Church teaches that because bishops are successors to the apostles, charged to maintain the unity and the truth of the Orthodox faith, they have the authority to ordain deacons, a priest, and other bishops. The word bishop, episcopos in Greek, means overseer, as we said earlier, and accordingly, bishops are in charge of a geographical area known as a diocese. The bishop over the national church holds the title of patriarchs. Bishops are servants and are not considered to be infallible. They are required to be either a widow or unmarried. Orthodox priests, also called pastors or presbyters, are ordained church officials who are in charge of the daily management of local parishes. The priests teach and preach in the local parish. They also administer sacraments such as communion and baptism. The Orthodox Church believes the priests have administrative duties as stated in 1 Peter 5, 1-2. So I exhort the presbyters among you as a fellow presbyter and witness to the sufferings of Christ and one who has a share in the glory to be revealed. Tend the flock of God in your midst, overseeing not by constraint but willingly, as God would have it, not for shameful profit but eagerly. Priest can marry as long as it is the first marriage for him and his wife. Bishops ordain deacons for service in the Orthodox Church. Deacons assist pastors and bishops in administering the sacraments but do not independently administer the sacraments. Deacons assist in the celebration of the liturgy and at other church services. Deacons are often chosen from among local parishioners and in the present day orthodoxy engage in hospital visitation, form youth group, lead educational ministries, and carry out missionary work. Deacons can marry, but like Orthodox priests, the marriage must be the first for both persons. The term clergy, as generally used in the Orthodox Church, applies to those who are members of the major orders and are ordained. Brothers and sisters, there is some of the duties of the clergy from the Bible. First, the Lord gave them the power to forgive sins. Matthew 18, 18, Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Second, the Lord gave them the power to heal and cast out demons. Luke 9.1 Then he called his twelve disciples together 
and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Third, the Lord gave them the power to ordain priests and bishops to deliver, to lay hands, and to appoint people for service. Ephesians 4.11 And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Fourth, the Lord sent them to preach and teach. Matthew 28.19 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the end, brothers and sisters, we are all invited to help and serve our church. And don't think that this job is only restricted to the clergy. Let us remember the words that Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 10:2. The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Amen. Thank you, Father Ephraim, for that enlightening message. And now a series of readings from the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our Holy Naptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. It is through us that Satan fights God, trying to nullify God's will, embodied as it is in the divine and life-giving commandments, by preventing us from carrying them out. Similarly, it is through us and through the help which he gives us that God seeks to accomplish his holy will and so to defeat the devil's lethal purpose. St. Philotheos of Sinai If the earth abides by itself, not receiving the farmer's attention and the assistance of rain and sun, it is unfit and incapable of bearing fruit, and every house would be filled with darkness but for the light of the sun, which is not of its own nature, and other things are in a similar state. In the same way, human nature, which in itself is powerless to produce the fruits of the virtues in their full perfection, needs the spiritual husbandman of our souls. In other words, it needs the Spirit of Christ, and this Spirit is of a totally different nature from our own, for we are created while He is uncreated, skillfully tilling the hearts of the faithful so that they surrender their whole will to Him. He enables them to produce perfect spiritual fruits, while He makes His light shine in the soul's dwelling place that has been darkened by the passions. St. Peter of Damascus When Adam accepted the sensual pleasure offered to him by Eve, who had come from his side, he expelled humanity from paradise. But when the Lord in his agony was pierced in his side by the lance, he brought the robber into paradise. Let us then love the suffering of the flesh and hate its pleasure, for the first brings us in and restores God's blessings to us, while the second drives us out and separates us from those blessings. Saint Maximus the Confessor. On the 10th of July, 
in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the holy, glorious, and right victorious new Hieromartyr Joseph Mohanna al-Haddad and his companions. Saint Joseph of Damascus, as he is commonly known, was a weaver by trade. After he was married and ordained to the priesthood, Joseph was assigned great economos of the patriarchal cathedral of the Domitian of the Most Holy Theotokos in the heart of the old city of Damascus. On Monday, July 9th, in 1860, the brutal massacre of Christians, which began in the Lebanese mountains, spread to Damascus. Some Damascenes, including Michael Hawawini and his young wife Mariam, who was bearing in her womb a son, the future Saint Raphael, fled the city for Beirut. The majority, however, took refuge in al Miya. Joseph took up his communion kit containing the reserve sacrament, left his home and began to make his way to the cathedral by jumping from rooftop to rooftop in the old city. As he went, he stopped to confess and commune the aged and infirm who could not flee their homes, encouraging them with stories from the lives of the great martyrs. On the morning of Tuesday, July the 10th, the cathedral was surrounded, pillaged and burned. Those inside perished in the flames. Of those who escaped and fled into the streets, most were caught and forced back into the burning building, while only a few, including Father Joseph, survived. As he roamed the narrow streets searching for survivors who needed confession and communion, Joseph was surrounded by the enemies of Christ. Seeing that his end was near, Saint Joseph took out his communion kit and consumed what remained of the body and blood of Christ. Recognizing him as the leader of the Christians, the persecutors savagely attacked and killed him with axes. Joseph and his companions were glorified by the Holy Synod of Antioch in 1993. On this day we also commemorate of the holy, glorious and right victorious 45 martyrs at Nicopolis in Armenia, Venerable Anthony of the Kiev Caves, and Venerable Martyrs Nicodemus the Albanian and Nectarios of the Saint Anne Skeet on Athos. By their intercessions, O Christ God, have mercy upon us. Amen. Did you know that the Old Testament is indispensable for understanding who Christ truly is? Stay tuned to find out more. Oh.
When we talk about the Bible, we can't help but divide it into two parts, the Old and the New Testament. Usually, when we designate something as old, we mean that it is obsolete because it has been superseded by something new. Therefore, we may be tempted to think that the Old Testament no longer requires our attention because we now have the New Testament. However, did you know that the writings of the Old Testament are indispensable to an Orthodox Christian and are necessary for understanding who Christ truly is? First and foremost, and perhaps most obvious, is the fact that the Old Testament is alluded to and quoted extensively in the New Testament. In the very beginning of the Gospel, according to St. Matthew, which was written primarily for a Jewish audience, we are introduced to the characters of the Old Testament in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and are presented with numerous quotes from the Law, the Psalms and the Prophets. In fact, all the Gospels, even the Gospel according to St. Luke, which was written to the Gentiles, who wouldn't have cared much for Jewish texts, quotes extensively from the Old Testament. In Acts, when St. Peter preaches his sermon after Pentecost, he quotes the Psalms and the prophet Joel at length, and when St. Stephen defends his faith in the presence of his persecutors, he recounts the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses. The epistles of St. Paul are laden with quotations and imagery from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Isaiah, Hosea, Joel and Habakkuk, just to name a few. Even the book of Revelation is full of images taken from the Old Testament. As we can see, the authors of the New Testament did not think that the books of the Old Testament were unimportant, and so neither should we. Secondly, in the Gospel according to Matthew, Christ says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Unsurprisingly then, throughout the whole New Testament, we find Christ explaining who he is by quoting and alluding to the writings of the Old Testament. When the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign to demonstrate he is the Messiah, Jesus says, I will give no sign but the sign of Jonah, a prophet of the Old Testament. Even after the resurrection, when the risen Christ meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he reiterates, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. We must remember that even the title of Messiah, or Christ in Greek, comes from the Old Testament and cannot be understood apart from it. Therefore, if we fail to understand the writings of the Old Testament, then we fail to understand Christ himself. The third reason, which perhaps isn't immediately obvious, is that the Apostles preached the Gospel according to the Scriptures, a reference to the writings of the Old Testament, before any of the books of the New Testament were even written. In the Gospel, according to St. Luke, it is written that Christ, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explains to his disciples what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. Therefore, we can see that whenever the New Testament authors mentioned the scriptures, they were referring to the writings of the Old Testament. In fact, even in our creed, we confess that Christ died and rose on the third day according to the scriptures, which is a reference not to the New Testament, but to the Old Testament. This phrase is almost certainly taken from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, where he writes, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Ultimately we, as Orthodox Christians, must see that the Old Testament cannot be dismissed as unimportant when compared to the New Testament. The Old Testament lays the very foundation of the New Testament. The Old Testament is fulfilled, not abrogated, by the New Testament. Therefore, if we want to know who Christ really is, just as St. Paul and the Apostles did, then we too must search the scriptures and look for Christ in the writings of the Old Testament, including the Law of Moses, the Prophets and the Psalms. The following segment is a reading from the Lives of the Saints, or Synaxarion. We have chosen to begin our first collection of readings on the Lives of the Prophets, of which we are thankful to bring a selected number of edifying accounts. The word prophet comes from the Hebrew word nevi, meaning proclaimer. A prophet is one who speaks by the direct inspiration of God, whose words and examples, while found in the Old Testament, are fulfilled in the New Testament through Christ's birth, ministry, crucifixion and resurrection. We hope that these synaxarions will encourage you to put on the likeness of Christ, as did these proclaimers and vessels of grace. The holy prophet Isaiah, whose feast day is celebrated on the 9th of May, lived approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ, and was of royal lineage. Isaiah's father, Amos, raised his son in the fear of God and in the law of the Lord. Having attained the age of maturity, the prophet Isaiah entered into marriage with a pious prophetess and had a son, Jashub. The prophet Isaiah is often considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, as Christians refer to him as the fifth evangelist. One main reason the prophet Isaiah is considered the greatest prophet is because he foretold many things about not only the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but also prophesied about his second coming. In fact, Isaiah is one of the most important books in the Old Testament and is often referred to as the fifth gospel. It is not only a narrative story, but also a collection of oracles, prophecies and parables. Isaiah, who authors the book, wrote it around 700 BC. Prophet Isaiah was called to prophetic service during the reign of Uzziah, king of Judea, and he prophesied for 60 years. The start of his service was marked by the following vision. He beheld the Lord God sitting in a majestic heavenly temple upon a high throne. The Lord sitting on his throne is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Encircled him by the six-winged seraphim, with two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew about crying out one to another, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord! Sabaoth, heaven and earth are filled with his glory. The pillars of the heavenly temple shook from their shouts, and in the temple arose the smoke of incense. The prophet cried out in terror, O an accursed man I am, granted to behold the Lord Sabaoth, and having impure lips and living amidst an impure people. Then was sent him one of the seraphim, having in hand a red hot coal, which he took with tongs, from the altar of the Lord. He touched it to the mouth of the prophet Isaiah and said, 
Lo, this has touched thy lips, and will take away thine impurities, and will cleanse thy sins. After this Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord, directed towards him, Whom shall I send, and who will go to this people? Isaiah answered, Here am I, send me. And the Lord sent him to the Jews to exhort them to turn from the ways of the impiety and idol worship, and to offer repentance. Isaiah's purpose was to bring back the nation of Judea, God's nation, back to the faithfulness as well as proclaim the coming of the Saviour and his future reign. He brings a message to Judea and Israel of condemnation as well as a message of hope and salvation through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah proved to be true. Because of this, we can know that his prophecies about the second coming will be fulfilled. Isaiah left behind a book of prophecy in which he denounces the Jews for their unfaithfulness to the God of their fathers. He predicted the captivity of the Jews and the return from captivity during the time of the Emperor Cyrus, the destruction and renewal of Jerusalem and of the temple. Isaiah prophesied many things to individual men as well as to the people. On one occasion, he walked naked around the streets of Jerusalem for three days prophesying the imminent fall of Jerusalem by the Assyrian king Sennacherib, reminding the king and the leaders of the people not to hope in assistance from the Egyptians or the Ethiopians, for they, also, will be subjugated by the same Sennacherib, but rather to trust in the help from God the Most High. This prophecy, as well as other prophecies, were literally fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah, with particular clarity and detail, prophesies about the coming of the Messiah, Christ the Saviour. The prophet names the Messiah as God and man, teacher of all nations, founder of the kingdom of peace and love. The prophet foretells the birth of the Messiah from a virgin. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. With particular clarity, Isaiah also describes the suffering of the Messiah for the sins of the world. He foresees his resurrection and the universal spread of his church. By his clear foretelling of Christ the Saviour, the prophet Isaiah deserves to be called an Old Testament evangelist. To him belong the words, He beareth our sins and is smitten for us. He was wounded for our sins and tortured for our transgressions. The chastisement of our world was upon him, and by his wounds were we healed. The holy prophet Isaiah was a discerning man. Because of the purity of his heart and because of his zealousness towards God, he also received the gift of working miracles. And so, when during the time of a siege of Jerusalem by enemies, the besieged had become exhausted with thirst, as there was drought, Isaiah prayed to God and by his prayer drew out from beneath Mount Zion a spring of water, which was called Siloam, that is, sent from God. It was to this spring afterwards the Lord directed the man, blind from birth, to bathe in this water in order for him to see. 
The prophet Isaiah died a martyr's death. During the reign of King Manassas, when Isaiah thundered against the pagan customs of the king and the leaders comparing that generation with Sodom and Gomorrah, the anger of the leaders and the people rose up against this great prophet. By order of the Jewish king Manassas, he was captured, led out of Jerusalem, and was sawed in half through by a wood saw. The prophet was buried not far from the pool of Siloam. The relics of the holy prophet Isaiah were afterwards transferred by the emperor Theodosius the Younger to Constantinople and installed in the church of St. Lawrence at Blakeney. At the present time, part of the head of the prophet Isaiah is preserved at Athos in the Hilanda Monastery. As we celebrate the memory of thy prophet Isaiah, O Lord, through him we beseech thee to save our souls. Having received the gift of prophecy, O prophet Martyr Isaiah, herald of God, thou didst make clear to all under the sun the incarnation of God by crying with a great voice, Behold, the virgin shall conceive in her womb. Through the prayers of the holy prophet Isaiah, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Thank you all for tuning in to another installment of The Divine Lantern. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe on your favourite podcast provider and share with your family and friends. We would like to announce that in commemoration of the Feast of the Prophet Elias the Tishbite, there will be a Vespers held at 7pm on Tuesday the 19th of July, followed by Divine Liturgy at 9am on Saturday the 23rd of July, both at St. Elias Antiochian Orthodox Church in Wollongong. For more details on this and any other upcoming events, please visit the Archdiocese website at antiochian.org.au. Have a lovely day and we hope to catch you next week.